Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Catherine, Tim, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Hello? Okay, not hearing y'all. I am going to dial in this way. Catherine, I'll tell you what, I believe that you and I are on the air, um, and apparently... Uh, hey, hey, guys, uh, how y'all doing? Oh, there he is. <laughs> Can you hear us now? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what happened. Um, let me also <laughs> get the feedback going away. I was on the headsets, and the headsets let me through uh, to talk to you on the pre-show, but then as soon as the show started... There goes my access. So I dialed in on my hard line or my uh, phone, and so now I got you. And let's get on with this thing. I don't know if y'all told the date or anything <laughs> else, but it's uh, May 12, 2019. I'm going to skip a little bit of the setup. Uh, we are excited today because we have Earl Swift, author of Chesapeake Requiem, one of the finest nonfiction books written in 2018. He's going to come on in about 20 minutes and talk to us about Tangier Island and all about his book and some of the even political environmental applica- applica- uh, implications and everything else. But, guys, let's kind of get into our uh, you know bigger topics of the week, some of our national topics, and one of those would be that the Trump administration is just seemingly not following the rule of law. We don't mean just Donald Trump now. We mean pretty much everybody in the administration, and in particular William Barr. Um, Tim, kind of frame just in the past, you know, week. What are all the things, all the the judicial norms that are not being followed? Well, uh, the entire rule of law basically is being followed. There, there are three principles I think to the rule of law. Number one, no one is above the law. Apparently, that ship sailed with Donald Trump long ago. Um, presidents should not be able to prosecute opponents or threaten to do it. Now, now, what were we doing just right before we come on the air? We were talking about, it's broken in the news, that Trump has talked to his attorney general about investigating Joe Biden. Now, gee, why do you think he would suddenly want to launch an investigation of Joe Biden? What could possibly... Uh, prompt that. Plus, we remember the rallies with lock her up, lock her up, and all such as that. And and then there's the respect for an independent judiciary. That went out the window. Trump talks about that Mexican judge or that silly judge or that court that needs to be done away with or, or you know, that sort of thing every time he gets a ruling against him. In the last week, you know, how the, the U.S. House has attempted to assert its oversight by, you know, getting the attorney general to come testify. He just refused. 
Um, they ignore subpoenas. They ignore contempt citations, which are flying now left and right. Uh, Steve Mnuchin is stepping in, refusing to release the president's tax returns um, to heads of committees, which, the you know, the Ways and Means can ask for it, and the Constitution just says that. And they're even ignoring the very Constitution of the United States. And I don't know where this is is, is going to go. There, there's there's this thing about the separation of powers, and we're supposed to have three separate and equal branches, and Trump is just ignoring it, and his entire administration is ignoring it, and of course they're doing that at the urging of Donald Trump himself. He's ignoring the Constitution. They're ignoring contempt resolutions. They're ignoring subpoenas. Um, I don't know where this is going to go. Uh, but this, this gets worse and worse with each passing day, and uh, we really have got ourselves a constitutional crisis, and I don't, I frankly don't know how it can be settled. Yeah, Catherine, it's either that seemingly that Donald Trump doesn't understand the checks and balances of the three branches of government or just doesn't care or some combination of thereof. And I'm not sure which is worse. Both are awful if he either doesn't understand a basic tenet of government that we teach students before their 12th grade year, or um, he's just disregarding it like some type of you know dictator from an emerging nation. What do you think? Well, I think he doesn't understand it. <clears throat> I think he is of the belief that if you're the president, you get to do whatever you want. Um, I think there's, you know, a, a sort of. Um, I, th- I think that's a, that's an idea that people have that, oh well, he's the president, he can do whatever he wants, and and a, a, you know, like you said, a complete misunderstanding of the way that the founding fathers, you know, the the vision of the of the way our government was supposed to work, but. Whatever the reason, I, I'm with Tim. I don't understand. I don't. I don't see how this works out. Like I don't. I mean, if he just continues to resist, what? I mean, what do we do? What do you do? How do you force a hand that? Just, I mean, he's just flat out refuses, and he's got a bunch of the people around him that are refusing too. And I don't know. You know, somebody said on the this week, this morning. I think it was Schiff said um, that they could. Um, fine them $25,000 a day while they, you know, uh, don't comply. But who's going to who's gonna collect that money and who's going to, like, what good does that do if they're just going to continue to, you know, not comply? It's a, it's a like, it, it is a constitutional crisis. What do we do? How do we, you know, because the Republicans are going along with it too. So it's not like we have the Senate and the rest of the Republican Congress to back to back up the you know um, compliance. Yeah, um, Tim. A few weeks ago, we had on Jeff Perlman, and we talked about Donald Trump as a sports owner, and some kind of frame this in a sports analogy. Um, is incumbent and and the you know the holder of the office as presidency. I'm not really sure he owns the arena, but I sure know he does. So why is he behaving like he owns both the arena and the rift? This is the way Donald Trump has behaved his entire life. He has not changed one iota. He has not tried to act presidential in any way. He acts like he wants to act. He has figured out he can do this. He has figured out that he can do this pretty much with impunity. Uh, Now that the Mueller report is out, this president feels like he is totally unchained to do whatever. He has finally a compliant attorney general that will go along with with whatever he wants to do. He has compliant uh, 
people all around him now. He has surrounded himself with the type of people he needs. He has the Senate Republicans going along with him, refusing to rein him in in any way for political reasons. Either they are afraid to oppose him for fear of a Twitter storm being released on them, or they they thinking, well, we're passing stuff we want. We're getting our judges and we can win another election with him so we can put up with him, and, uh, being we can't stop him anyway. And uh, now I believe he also has, has packed the courts with enough people, especially he thinks that the Supreme Court is his, you know, ace in the hole. So he, he thinks he can pretty much do anything he wants to, and he thinks that's the type of president this country needs and that he's that guy. And, you know, uh, 46% of the voters go along with him. So, uh, you know, the question remains, who is going to stop this guy? Uh, you know, we thought it'd be great when the House uh, went Democratic and they'd have oversight and they could rein him in a little bit. They haven't reined him in very much. They can't. Yeah, now let's get into that. You know, where do the Democrats go from here? Um Representative Nadler, they've held William Barr in contempt. Um, my understanding is, is the um, House does have police force. They could send somebody to, um, you know, enforce that and, and really arrest, not typical arrest like you do for a civil crime out or criminal crime out in public, but they could then bring him into the Capitol because that's where their facility is. And if they brought him to the Capitol, then the thought would be he would then come testify. He might bring an un- unredacted copy of the Mueller report with him, and all these things. Um, Catherine, why are the why is the, is the House leadership not moving ahead, or will they move ahead this week, not any later, and go ahead and send the Capitol Police out for Attorney General Barr? Well. I mean, they could do that, but what's to say that he would – I mean, he could come along, but what's to say he's going to actually bring the things that we're asking for and then talk about it? I mean, you can't – I mean, you can drag somebody to, uh, you know, to some kind of, you know, cell or office or whatever it looks like, but – it doesn't mean they're still doesn't mean they're going to comply. Well, wouldn't it at least show some force, show some you know backbone? I mean, I think that's one problem the Democrats are going to have is if they don't you know have any teeth to what they're saying, people are going to lose respect for them. So at least if they brought him in, the visuals would be there. It would seem to a lot of the American public that maybe isn't on board yet. Oh, the Trump administration really is violating the rule of law. I just think for nothing else, the is optics what, they have. But is that what those optics would say, or would it say, "Oh, the, I, I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other," or would it say, "Oh, the Democrats are just, um, you know, pushing this. Why don't we all? Why don't they get back to work and do something, you know, more productive?" I'm, I'm not agreeing with that. I'm just like. I mean, I I would love it. I mean, it would make me happy, but they already have me. So, I, I mean, I, I'm sure they're balancing, you know, what is going to be, um, what is going to produce the results that we want. Like, what is going to, you know, get these people to talk and to uh, testify or whatever it is that we want them to do. And what is just going to make um, Americans more and more frustrated with um, their elected leadership? I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Tim, I guess I like Catherine playing a devil's advocate there. Um, what's your thoughts on what would be the options of making this move or not making this move? Oh, uh, you, you know, it's almost as if Trump uh, and them – want the Democrats to do something like that so they can scream they're overreaching and how awful it is and how 
how, how they need to get back to work and this and that and the other thing. And, uh, you, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure how it would play, to be honest with you, even though it would technically be the right thing to do. Something better would be somehow to get Mueller in there to testify. That, 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 that optic by itself would just be marvelous. And if he said the right thing, then it would give the Democrats cover to begin uh, impeachment hearings. Not actually move to an impeachment yet, to, but to begin the hearings. And uh, they, they need to do something. They, they can't keep saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're threatening to do this, we're threatening to do that, and then do nothing because that's just going to make Trump and them ignore them more and push against them harder. you got to push back at some point. you got to bloody Donald Trump's nose. It's the only thing he understands when he gets hit right in the nose, like when Nancy Pelosi walked in the White House and just took him apart in front of the country uh, and then walked out st- outside putting on those sunglasses. That, that was a great moment. That sort of thing uh, – Trump notices uh, he he's not paying any attention to the Democrats right now, so they're gonna they're gonna have to make a solid move of some sort. And I think what I would do is try my best to get Mueller in there to testify and start there. Yeah, I think you're right about getting Mueller to testify. But at some point, and maybe they did those things in reverse. They could have got Mueller to testify, then pushed on the uh, report because they could say, "Hey, well, look at all this testimony we got." Some of it wasn't even in the report. It was blacked out, um, and so we need it now. And put, and I guess they could still go back and say that. Tim, you brought up a good point about Nancy Pelosi. She did have a great visual there in that White House meeting. They looked tough. Even Chuck Schumer looked tough, and he, of course, gets uh, panned by certain alive for not being tough on Republicans. Would it be possible – could there be something to be, you know, the stonewall everything, and then, you know, we love marches, and we have a march, this, that, and the other, and we'll say, well, kind of what, what did that march exactly do? What if the House and possibly the Democrats in the Senate um, marched out of the Capitol straight down Pennsylvania Avenue and just banged on the you know, White House doors? And if Nancy <laughs> Pelosi was leading that, that charge… This is not John Q. Public that they'd say, well, you have no access, blah, blah, blah. This is someone that is the closest constitutional equal uh, to the president being the Speaker of the House. I mean, could, you know, would that visual there in a march not be, hey, we mean business and you're not following the rule of law? This is another example of how democracies die. Catherine, what do you think? Well, that's straight out of West Wing, I'll say. Um, the the TV show, um, you know that might be a that might be a visual that would be appealing. Um, I, I'm just not sure what. So what? So they get there. What do they do? What do they say? They demand to see the president. I, I mean, just mm. state right, but that, thing one, so, and so, then if they get so the TV they cameras to, there, he could get him out of his robe. Get, get him out of his robe and get him away from Twitter and bring him down to meet them. And, and then what, then what, ha- I, I mean, I, 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 I like the <laughs> visual, but I'm just trying to understand what, like, then what, like, what's the, what's the, um, you know, end result. So they, but they, they want to see the president. Do they, they, then they start questioning him. Yes. They list their 99 grievances and I, and I'm referencing the, the Reformation. I mean, they, they they list their, you know, they then say, this is what's not happening. We want to see the report. If you don't think there was any collusion, what are you hiding? You know, they actually, you know, show some toughness. Let's say he says, well, I don't have to see you because I'm the president. And I'm a billion times more important than you because he doesn't understand the Constitution. Then they um, would have that visual that they were just stonewalled. By the president, and he's afraid of something. You know, and then they could go and say, "Well, look, you know, one of your political heroes, Andrew Jackson, he put the cheese wheel down in the um, atrium, and he would see the regular people." 
not only you not see the regular people, you won't see the leaders of the country. Um, although, uh, honestly, you'd probably go rather see the, the regular people like that guy in the panhandle that wants to shoot uh, immigrants coming into the country, and Donald Trump just laughed that off this past week. But, I mean, there's got to be more done. We, I think the Democratic Party looks weak if they don't demand something. Tim, would you would you agree about the the optics of weakness right now? Well, I wouldn't march down down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House. That's a violation of protocol. You go to the White House when you're invited to go to the White House. You don't just storm out of the Capitol and head over there because then you'd look like Trump looks and you'd be on Trump's level. And if there's we we don't wanna we don't wanna be on that yeah, level. I tell point. you something I yeah. tell you something that would get, get some of them's attention. You do know that the House does control the purse strings of everything. Well they ought to quit paying some people. How about that? Quit if they ain't doing their jobs then don't pay them till they do. You know, if they're well, not going to come over there and testify, sorry, we got to cut off your salary, and we're going to divert the money instead to the national debt. Well, the American people love that. And, and, and Tim, we'll get into that in just a second. And now we'll welcome our guest um, to the show, author and journalist Earl Swift. Welcome, Earl. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. And um, we wanted to have you because of your um, great new book that came out in 2018, All Kind of Awards, Chesapeake Requiem. I'm going to pass it now to Catherine Smith, one of my co-hosts, and she's going to ask you some initial questions. Then Tim Schiff will ask you some questions, and then I have, have many, many more. Catherine? Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show with us. We really appreciate it. Um, I oh, you have bet, to Catherine. Confess, I have not read your book yet. But our host, David, who was just speaking, has been raving about it for weeks, and so it's on my on my list, as well as um, being from Detroit and being a big, you know, car person, I'm interested in reading autobiography as well. So oh, could you tell us a, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to um, write Chesapeake Requiem? Was there some moment that some some epiphany that made you uh, interested in that, or is it just something that's been, you know, bubbling up for a long time? Well, I'm, I'm a former newspaper reporter. I spent 30 years working for newspapers in St. Louis, Anchorage, and for most of the time, 22 years in Norfolk, working for the Virginian Pilot. And uh, and while a reporter in Norfolk uh, uh, was assigned several times to go to Tangier Island, which is a tiny lump of mud about a square mile in size, um, out in the middle of the widest part of the Chesapeake Bay. The bay is about 30 miles wide at that point, and Tangier is in Virginia, just south of the state line, uh, and uh, it is 16 open water miles from the nearest Virginia port. Uh, so it's, uh, it is oddly, although it's less than 100 miles from Washington, D.C., it is one of the most isolated communities in the east, certainly, and, and probably in the lower 48, and uh, has, in its isolation, <laughs> developed some quirks that uh, that kind of set <laughs> apart. It had, its people speak a uh, a, uh, a variation of the uh, the tidewater hoitoid accent that uh, stretches it in ways that no other place really does. Uh, uh, to the point where, if you were to listen to two Dane German speaking with themselves, you know, to each other, you'd be hard pressed to to understand two out of ten words that they said. And uh, it's also a, a practical theocracy of, uh, of old school Methodism. And when I say old school, I mean unlike any Methodism that's practiced today on the mainland, it's uh, it's kind of a Civil War era Methodism trapped in amber. Uh, pretty much, and uh, we're talking shouting Methodist, you know, the old style uh, uh, layperson directed Methodism, and uh, it's a uh, it's a town that earns its living 
almost completely from the water. Uh, you know, the water around it is teams with fish and crab and oyster. And uh, for 240 years, Tangierman have have culled the bay of its bounty, and, and that's really what's uh, put them on the map outside of the bay. If you eat soft-shell crab, odds are it came from Tangier Island. And uh, the I guess the, the last kind of quirk that they – the share is that uh, virtually every man, woman, and child is descended from the same guy, a guy named Joseph Crockett, who showed up on the island in 1778. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so there's very little em- so, very little immigration to Tangier Island, apparently. And well, what's the population? There's little to do if you got there, except, you know, if, if you want to be a waterman, if you want to go crabbing, then there's no place better, but there are very few people who who aren't born into to the waterman's life who choose to follow it. It's it's a tough way to make a living, tough and dangerous, and uh, the hours could not be worse. You know, you're up at two in the morning, three in the morning, and out on the water hours before sunup. And uh, yeah, I mean, and you're you're in a small wooden boat on a big bay that that can become tempestuous in no time at all. I mean, the bay is uh, is a shallow, shallow body of water. It averages 21 feet deep, but that works against you when it comes to wave building. Uh, you know, the Tangier has a lot of what mariners call fetch, which is room around it for waves to build, and uh, and the winds tend to be from the directions where there's a lot of water, and uh, it can go from slick cam or glassy, as the Tangier would say, to uh, to five foot seas in a matter of minutes. And it's, let me tell you, being on one of those little boats when you're in rough water is, uh, it's white knuckle. So anyway, that, and what's the, po- all that, what's the population? 460 and, mm. uh, and falling. The, uh, I'm sure. Anyway, I've been to Tangier several times as a reporter and, uh, and then went back for the first time in 15 years in 2015 and stepped onto an island that looked completely different. Uh, the effects of, of sea level rise were obvious wherever I looked. Uh, not only was the bay coming up around over the edges of the island, but uh, at high tide it came straight up percolating through the ground to make ponds of people's yards. And, you know, the island is dissolving underfoot and, um, and this is a this is a town that's been there since 1778. It's an old old place, and uh, it is looking now uh, that as if it it's a good candidate to be the the first real town in America that will have to be abandoned due to climate change. Okay, so that's great. Thank you for that intro. And now I'm going to pass it to Tim. He has a series of questions, and then we'll go back to David. And if we have time, we might get back to me again. Thank you so much okay. again for being with us tonight. And thank sure. you for writing the book. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Mr. Swift, for being with us uh, tonight. Um, I'd read that many of the islanders there do not subscribe to climate change. Why not when they see the evidence of it firsthand? Well, uh, it's... Uh... It's a complicated question, and, and there are complicated answers to it. But part of it lies in faith. You know, as I mm-hmm. mentioned to Catherine, this is a, a near theocracy of old-school Methodists. And um, I think that there is a feeling among them that man is too puny to alter the works of God, that uh, that the, the Earth's climate is, is divinely created and uh, – beyond the reach of man to affect. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is that, that islands have been disappearing in the Chesapeake since the early 19th century, certainly, and probably a lot longer than that. And, and so they point to that and say, look, you know, this, this isn't climate change. This is wind-driven erosion. This is you know, this the, the result of, of wave action. And in fact, much of the damage to Tangier is the result of wave action. But what Tangierman 
don't grasp, I guess, is that uh, erosion and sea level rise are not mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, inextricably linked. And that as the reason erosion has increased in ferocity over the years is because the seas have come up. And they've been coming up for a long time. You know, we, we just we, we tend to to view climate change as a recent phenomenon, but it's been underway for a long time. We just haven't really recognized it. Uh, if you go back through the tidal records in the Chesapeake Bay, you'll see that erosion and land loss occurred, but at a very low rate up until about the mid nineteenth century. About eighteen fifty something happened. There is a there's a point of inflection at which uh, land loss began to accelerate, and it accelerated all through the 19th century, rose to a gallop in the 20th, and now is just uh, moving along at breakneck speed. So it's it, you know if you were to chart sea level rise, it does not follow a straight line on the, on a graph. It is not a you know it's not a steady uh, progression. It is an accelerating progression. So the the curve that it creates on a graph is parabolic. You know, it increases in, in angle as it goes. And um, and what we see now is, uh, you know, a, a, a group of people on Tangier who, uh, who for a variety of reasons, uh, but namely those two I mentioned, just don't choose to recognize that what is going on um, is this climate change that, that the wider world is wringing its hands about. Mm-hmm. But having been there several times, having done stories on it, having actually lived there while you were researching this bush uh, uh, book, uh, do you consider Tangier Island to be a microcosm of the greater climate science debate with the doubters on one side and those, you know, saying this is what is happening on the other side and the people in the middle uh, trying to grasp it all. Would you would you say it's a microcosm of of what's going on in in the climate science debate around the country? <laughs> no, no, I really wouldn't because I don't think there's much debate. I mean, Tangier uh-huh. is an extreme case. I mean, the the debate's over. You know, I, I, uh-huh. mean, I think most people recognize that at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no debate in the scientific community. I mean, we're talking about a minuscule minority of scientists. Who are out of step on on this question? Yeah. Um, you know, it's decided, and and yeah. what's um, happening? Uh, unfortunately, though, we have a major political party in this country on the <laughs> on one side of the debate. We and we we have a lot of very powerful business interests on one side of this debate, albeit for their own reasons, and and it and it kind of it kind of makes you say well yeah we're 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 still still certainly in a debate because really nothing's well, getting done about it agreed it's not a scientific debate though the science mm-hmm. is well established at this point well, you know, people well let choose, me choose to disbelieve the science that's you know uh-huh. whatever yeah, well, uh, well, let, let's let's ask let's let's ask you point blank since you've been there since you've seen it progress can tangier island still be safe it would require heroic intervention, um, and I mean heroic, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of intervention that could only be undertaken by the federal government, really. We're talking a, a hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars kind of uh, intervention. But yes, I mean, what? technically it could be, sure. Uh, there is the engineering available to save it if the American people chose to to pursue that. And, and you know, the the – Tangier's dilemma really uh, – it's important, I think, uh, in that it forces us to, to, to a reckoning as, as a country. And we've got a real town here that is going to you – know, everyone – it's got maybe 20 years. Um, wow. And uh, you know, that, it forces us to make a decision as to what we value. What is worth? It's pretty clear. We've got 88,000 miles of shoreline in the United States, much of which will be imperiled over the next couple of generations. It's pretty clear that we don't have the time, we don't have the the money, and we don't have the technical means to save 
every town like Tangier that's going to be imperiled. Um, so we've got to make a hard decision, a series of hard decisions as to what we save and what we surrender. And that will require us to develop a rubric for making that decision. And Tangier's importance, I think, is is less that it's a truly unique uh, blip on the map and more that it is the first town that is going to force us to really come to terms with the with assigning a value to to places and people and and uh, you know this is it's just the first of hundreds if not thousands of communities that will face this dilemma so you know what we choose to do or not do in Tangier's case will inform what we do the next time and the time after that and the time after that. We have to be consistent, it seems to me, if we're going to be at all fair in how we go about this. So we have to figure out, okay, what is it that will decide what communities are, are worth saving to us? Is it simply a matter of headcount? Is it strictly a, a you know population? If so, then we are going to willingly give up places, a lot of places that we consider sacred ground as a country or that we consider key to the American cultural tapestry. And, um, you know, if, if it's, if we, if we consider those sort of cultural uh, components in developing this rubric, well, you know, what values do we assign to what kind of culture? I mean, it's, it's going to get really ugly and it's going to require people far smarter than me to figure it out. What I worry about is what is happening a, a few miles away in Washington, D.C., and I worry that the way things stand that we can't reach a consensus on anything in this country right now, and it deprives us of the political courage to make the tough decisions. Do you worry that the country will not have the political courage to face what's going on in places like Tangier Island? No, of course. Sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the dilemma that we face, that every place faces, is going to require uh, engineering solutions and unity of purpose to a degree that we've never been called upon to to demonstrate. And uh, it's going to cost an enormous amount of money. It's going to create a lot of jobs, but it's going to cost an enormous amount of money. And, uh, you know, if we choose not to make those tough decisions, uh, nature's going to make them for us. So, I mean, it's, it's not like if, you know, this has got to go away if we choose to, to ignore it. It's, it's happening, whether we like it or not. And it's going to happen a lot sooner than people realize. We, we've become complacent, I think, because so many scientific predictions are based on the year 2100. Well, yeah. believe me, this is, oh. this is going to be happening way sooner. The yeah, Chesapeake Bay is... That's a great point that you just made, Mr. Swift, that climate change is a thing, and it doesn't care if people no. believe that it's happening or not. It and with doesn't. that, I am going to send it over to David to ask some more questions. David? <laughs> yes. Well, they hit on so many good things, but I'm going to go a little deeper on a few things. Uh, and I'll start off since we're talking about the environment and climate change. Um, on Tangier Island, the fishermen – and the and the other residents of the island, they point to erosion as being the problem instead of rising sea levels. Now, it's probably there is some erosion, and rising sea levels could cause greater erosion. But but why do they hang on to this erosion? Is the almost sole cause of they what they see is their island shrinking. Well, as I mentioned to Catherine, you know, a big piece of it is that this erosion has been underway for a long, long time. And people have only recently attached the label climate change to it. You know, when, when I first went to Tangier in 1999, Tangier men were already in a, in a low grade panic about 
land loss on their island. I mean, Tangier at that point had lost two-thirds of its land since the Civil War. And this is a place that didn't have a lot of real estate to begin with. And so, you know, I mean, they, they look out their windows. They saw waves rolling in on the west side of the island, and they saw pieces of the west side of the island break off and, and float away. And it seemed pretty evident to them, well, you know, these waves are, are, are the cause of what's happening. Uh, of course, we're beginning to see now that those waves are a symptom of what's happening that they are part of a bigger system of things happening. Uh, and that as the bay rises, and there's no question it's coming up, and coming up at an ever faster rate, those waves are going to be a lot more destructive. You know, they, they, uh, it tends to used to have beach all around it. There's very little beach left now. It's all in a spit at the south end of the island. And the reason is, is that you know the the bay has come up and it's carried that beach away, and uh, and now water water comes rolling in and smacking right into wetlands and drowning wetlands, turning it to mud flat and then to open water, and uh, and so you see not only uh, wave action increasing but you see the land loss uh, accelerating. Uh, everything is is happening much faster than it used to, and and Tangier has always had an erosion problem. Um, it's just that now, uh, over the past 150 years, as the bay has, has increased in, in depth, as that water level has come up, that erosion problem is far fiercer than, uh, you know, their, the Tangerman's forebears could have imagined. It's, uh, yes, and, and I guess... And, uh, and it'll, it'll spell well, the end of the place, you know, and, and in very little time. Yes, and I guess the the beach is eroding. Or I'm sorry, the beach is you know shrinking to such levels. It's also going to affect the tourism industry, which is a small piece of their economic puzzle. Um, I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to get I, I the say, David, wording wrong. Nobody, I, I got to say, David, just just nobody goes to Tangier for the beach. This is not a tourist <laughs> destination for beachgoers. It's a uh, it's a it's a tourist destination for people interested in the very quirky culture that they have on Tangier, a product hmm. of its isolation for the last 240 okay. years. But this oh. isn't a place with resort hotels or, um, you know, for one thing, it's a dry island. You can't, you can't buy alcohol on Tangier, um, which limits its, its promise as a beach destination. Um, yeah, and, for, and it for kind another, of, when you talked about the – yeah, go ahead. Well, for another, it's you know it's uh, it's patrolled by vicious uh, biting flies that uh, that rise from the wetlands like like mist and and you know this is a place with a lot of wetlands. Eighty percent of Tangier is, is salt marsh that floods twice a day. Uh, and uh, you know if you've been around salt marsh, you know that it gives a gassy stink off at low tide. So there there are many factors of life on Tangier that I happen to love but that your typical tourist might find uh, unattractive. Yes, and and so and we've had somebody talk about vacation spots before in the context of politics, believe it or not. So uh, that's more information for our listeners to know that this is more of a vacation kind of, I guess, like going to Amish country. Um, I want, I'm going to try to quote or try to recollect an um, environmental – statistic or, or piece of information that I had never heard outside of your book, but it was absolutely fascinating. And if I get it wrong, please correct me slash amend what I say. But in there, you said that um, people that study climate and Earth's geography said if we did not have the rising temperatures on our planet, that our ocean level and the natural ebb and flow would actually be lower than in previous generations or, or than it naturally would be, um, but because of the rising temperatures, now our, our seas are higher. What exactly was that that statistic exactly about um, the overall sea level? You're, you're, you're in the ballpark. It was a paper that came out yeah. uh, a couple of years ago that, uh, that showed that had climate change not been underway, had uh, – 
had man-made climate change not been a factor in the Earth's changing weather patterns, temperature, etc., cetera, uh, that sea levels during the 20th century would have probably stayed the same or possibly, although it was a long shot, possibly even dropped a little, but that as it was with the effects of man's hand on the environment, uh, sea levels came up by about half a foot. Yes, I just thought that was fascinating, and that really kind of shows the greater impact that um, humankind has, has put on our uh, world. But I wanted to ask you another question more about the people, and that would be, um, as I got to listen to your book more and more deeper into it, uh, it seemed like they, they were more like um, really, really uh, devout um, Mormons that are kind of an insular community, or I just mentioned the Amish um, now, they do believe in technology, um, so that's a little bit different. But do you think there's um, – even though there's Methodists, which seems like just a pretty run-of-the-mill Protestant group, um, do you see the similarities to a more fundamentalist Mormon sect or um, the Amish even? Well, you know, I, I, I tend to think that um, – you know, Tangier was not settled, unlike the Mormon. You know, unlike Salt Lake City, uh, Tangier was not settled by Methodists. It was settled by fishermen who embraced Methodism later, after the place had already established a foothold. Um, and uh, you know, uh, un- unlike the Amish, they do not choose to set themselves apart from. From American culture at large, it's just that they're physically removed from it. You know, it, it takes. This is a place that, you know, if you have to go to the emergency room, it's 30 miles away by state police helicopter. So I mean, they they are really kind of way out there. They're they're out in the middle of 18 trillion gallons of water. That's what really sets them apart. And um, their Methodism is, I think, a uh, an answer to the challenges that they face just living on an island surrounded by so much uh, rough water. Uh, you know, if you, if you, uh, <laughs> if you were called upon to take your life in your hands on a regular basis, just to go in to get groceries, you know, to the mainland, um, you tend to have a different relationship with faith than, than most of us do, I think. And, uh, and Tangierman, are, are big believers in the power of prayer and collective prayer. They they have over the in the course of the last 240 years watched hurricanes trundle up the bay right towards them only to veer away, and they believe that their their prayer has has been the cause of of that salvation, that sparing. They have seen diseases, epidemics of disease, lay the community low without dealing it a death blow. And again, they credit their their prayer for for saving the community at those tough times. And you know, they've seen they've seen fisheries collapse only to rebound a year or two later. Time and time again, Tangierman have seen uh, or or have come to believe that their power of prayer has has saved them, and therefore they believe themselves to be an anointed people, anointed um, by their power of prayer, protected. And, and really, if you if you want to look for a big reason why they are un, unconcerned, not really unconcerned, but unswayed by talk of climate change and about their untenable position because of it, part of it is that they believe they're going to be saved once again. They believe that their their anointing will see them through. That there will be a divine intervention to spare them. And uh, that's powerful stuff, more powerful so far than, than scientists have been able to, you know, to, to talk around. Yes, and I had one final question, and it's even more specific about the people. Um, while you were living on the island and, and going out on the fishing boats and going to all their meetings, you could tell you formed a, a personal bond with a lot of the uh, main folks in the story, the mayor, the mayor's father-in-law, Leon, uh, let me say, if, if you were a fiction writer and you created 
that character, your your editor would have said, uh, get rid of him or change him because he's too, he's just not believable. An eight year old man doing all that work. Um, but you, but at the same time, they had all these. Go ahead. Eighty seven. Eighty seven. I think he was eighty, maybe the first time you met him, and yeah, just uh, and of course time moves on for all of us. Um, but you had this personal connection with all these folks, but yet when it came to talking about the election and then, of course, the environmental issues, you didn't agree with the folks. How did you kind of at times reconcile that you liked the people on a personal level, but you didn't agree with some of their political or scientific beliefs? Well, I mean, David, when it gets down to it, who cares what I believe? I'm there to tell their story, not tell mine. And so, you know, yeah, sure, I had to bite my tongue a few times, but, but you're right. I, I, I came to love the tangerman. I think they're completely wrong on, on the question of climate change, but that doesn't affect the, the fact that I find them admirable and, and, and wonderful people. Um, and, you know, I was, I was there to tell their story, and I had to get out. I had to get the heck out of the way. Uh, it you know my my role in the book. I, I tend to be a character in my own books, but I'm I'm pretty much I occupy the same role in each of them, which is that I'm the I'm the faceless narrator. I'm the guy who takes you by the hand. I'm your surrogate as the reader, and um, I take you places that you can't go by yourself and explain what it is that we're looking at when we're looking at it. Uh, that role requires that, that I you know I keep my mouth shut because the reader is not along for the ride to hear what I happen to think, you know, and, and, and uh, throughout the book, I do, I, of course, I point out that, you know, what the scientific supermajority um, believes to be happening with the climate. And I point, you know, I, I the science in the book is based on a, a great deal of research done by, done by scientists who have been at this for a long time and have, you know, <laughs> have, have, very convincing evidence as to as to what's happening, and um, it's just up to me. You know, it's 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 my role, as I see it, to uh, to point out when Tan German are kind of missing the boat on on the facts um, by letting the facts speak for themselves. I present the facts, but I don't argue with the with the, with the Islanders. I mean, that's that's not my role. Yes, and that's probably the best role to play because you're going to get much more of an openness from them and a much better story. And speaking of that wonderful story, then your book has won so many awards. Um, seems like you're going to follow it up with a great new project if you're at the point where you can tell folks um, about your next uh, item you're working on, your next uh, article, book, whatever. Feel free to do that now. No, nope, no, nope, can't do it. Uh, it's uh, can't do it. That's fine. <laughs> a little, little too early in the process to jinx it by talking about it now. But, uh, but I've got a couple of things in the works, and uh, and hope to uh, hope to be able to do both of them in in pretty quick order. But going back just yeah. for a second, you know, to, to your comment after my last after we talked on that last question. Now, this isn't just a strategy to get them to open up to me. I want to make that clear that that this. The, the decision, you know, that, that this is their story that I'm telling and not my own. Um, to go in with another idea in your head would be uh, to be practicing something other than journalism, I think. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that you can present a point of view as narrator, but opinions are, are they're pretty out of place. You're there. You're there to to capture what it is that your subject presents you and, uh, you know, to, to set the record straight, to verify or, or uh, refute uh, what that person says, certainly. But, but uh, this is not a strategy. I don't want your, you or your listeners to think this is a strategy founded in, in a desire to be uh, accepted more by the people there. This is a strategy uh, that is intrinsic to good storytelling, it seems to me. And uh, yeah, you know, my, my strategy for being accepted by the people there was just to live there for 14 months until they finally got so used to me. Um, and, and, you know, I became part of the wallpaper. 
but uh, mm. you know, and, and I went I have, out crabbing I, with him. I went to church. Yeah. Okay. What What has been the reaction from the people of Tangiers to the book? Are they Have they enjoyed, or are they satisfied with the story that you told? Well, uh, let me give a kind of a longish answer to that short question. Uh, and Tangiers pretty media savvy place it's been visited by by big city reporters since the 1890s certainly and probably before that and uh i mean the new york times has a thing about tangier they go there every few years like clockwork and uh and, and so they're they're accustomed to seeing reporters and they're accustomed to seeing reporters do the same thing over and over which is to show up maybe spend one night maybe two and very unusual circumstances uh, talk to a half dozen people maybe go out uh, with a crabber, a crabber in his boat for the day and uh, and then leave and over time uh, you know everybody on an island uh, has, has a role to play accountability is impossible to avoid and over time a half dozen or so people on the island have become the de facto people who will talk to reporters they're the ones who kind of assigned by the community to take on that job. And so <laughs> the reporters talk to the same half dozen people over and over oh, again. No. And, and they wind no. up with essentially a very similar story. Now, one thing that reporters rarely do is go to church, which you have to do. It's a near theocracy. You cannot understand Tangier if you don't go to church. And the other reason to go is that during prayer requests, you find out what's going on with everybody. You find out who's sick who's had an accident, who's got visitors coming in, who's going off, off the island you know, on a trip, you find out everything. It's like getting a, a, you know, a daily paper to go to, to go to church and listen to the prayer request. So it's, you know, I, I came to see it as a pretty essential element of, of life there, and it demanded my, my attendance. Now, uh, because Tangiermen have become so accustomed to reading the same story about themselves over and over, uh, I realized that I had to set myself apart from every other reporter when I first got there. And, and of course, one of the reasons, one of the ways I did it was I moved into a, an actual house rather than staying at one of the B and Bs or whatever. And I went to church, which they were not accustomed to seeing. And I hung out with the old timers at a daily coffee clatch that they have. They call the Situation Room, and uh, I'm not accustomed <laughs> to that either. And and uh, and so I think they had pretty high hopes that that what I wrote about them would at least get beyond the same old same old that they were used to reading. But as you know, David, it's it's not. I mean, it's a pretty unblinking view of them. It's not an entirely. I mean, they're people with foibles, and I, and I go through their foibles in some detail, and. Um, so, you know, my daughter was quite worried when uh, the book came out last August. I decided Tangier was going to be my first – I was going to do my first reading on the island. It seemed only fair and proper. Uh, she was worried that, that my my reading was going to end like the wicker man and uh, because she had read the book. <laughs> and I knew that I had gone into detail about their foibles. But, uh, but I went there with my fiancé, and, and we, uh, we packed the school auditorium. And uh, we got to the question and answer period at the end of, of the reading, and uh, I thought, okay, you know, this is the moment of truth. I'm going to either get an earful or I'll find out how the book's going over right now. This is four days after the book came out, and by this time, I'm betting half the island had read it cover to cover. And uh, Islander after Islander stood up, and, and instead of asking questions, they offered testimony. It was like being in church. They offered testimony about wow. me, about the book, about my fiance who came to visit me several times while I was reporting the book. Wow. And and what the sum of all this was uh, that they were just grateful that someone had presented the tanger that they know that that you know warts and all, and they would have preferred that some of those warts were left unexplored certainly, <laughs> but uh, but I you know I I I described the island and life on the island as they knew it to be. And um, they were just grateful, I think, uh, that uh, 
that the story, despite it got you know it's getting into some pretty embarrassing territory, uh, got it right. Well, that must have been a great moment for you. It I was mean, all the electrifying. All the reports was, and the reviews and the awards, but to have told a story and be embraced by the people you told the story about is probably the greatest. I would I would think if, if I was a writer, that well, would be what I would think well, would be the greatest reward. Well, had, had I uh, just put a shine on everything and and uh, you know made it a a, 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 a nothing but happy story. Uh, I wouldn't have felt so great about it, but the fact that uh, you know it was a warts and all presentation and they reacted the way they did uh, was it was one of the most amazing nights of my life. It was an electrifying moment. There were tears. I mean, it was just it was incredible. Well, congratulations for that. Well, thank you, and thank, thank you, you. Who's, who's for telling their story. Oh well, it, it was uh, you know I'm I'm an incredibly lucky guy to have been uh, allowed to tell the story really, because they could have made it tough. They could have chosen not to participate and they, um, they made me a Tangierman for 14 months, which, uh, which is something that, uh, that will stay with me. Yes. Um, well, Earl, uh... I tell you what, I, I, I guess I, I, his name escapes me. The uh, historian from the 1800s that you used a lot of his source material, and of course, I think even had to uh, re-examine some of it. Uh, I guess your book <laughs> is right Crockett. there with his history. T- t- Sugar Tom. Sugar Tom. So, so I guess can you be Sugar Earl now, or have they not hold you that high? <laughs> Well, Islanders are still not real happy about Sugar Tom's book. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a it's a bizarre it's a bizarre book because the the first half is what passes for a history, although it's you know eighty percent all wrong. Uh, and then the second half is this Tom Sawyer esque kind of rem, uh, memoir of Sugar Tom's youth uh, in the mid nineteenth century on the island. He wrote it and it was published in eighteen ninety one, and. Uh, the Islanders were so scandalized by the Tom Sawyer part of the book that they they collected and burned every copy they could get their hands on. So for for you know a hundred years, it was really an accomplishment to run across a copy of of Sugar Tom's book. There were just none to be found. I, I found uh, I had a librarian on the Eastern Shore slip me a photocopy of the library's copy, which they could not keep on the shelves because had they put it on the shelf, it would have disappeared and would have wound up burned probably. Uh, <laughs> so Sugar Tom's, Sugar Tom's not a, uh, his account is not universally embraced on Tangier. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to know. I just remember that Sugar Tom and all the, the different times you referenced it, particularly early in the book. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take another angle on an earlier question uh, to close it out, uh, I understand you can't talk about your next book. If you have any social media sources or, or anywhere you just write articles uh, more recently, you want to share that with our listeners so they can read you in the interim until your next uh, volume comes out. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I'm, I write for Outside Magazine, and uh, they can they can go to the Outside Magazine website, or they can go to my website, which is earlswift.com, and uh, and it. In the news and con- news and events uh, page of, of my website, there's uh, I'll usually post magazine pieces as they come out. I actually have to get on the stick and and post my most recent one, but uh, but I'll do that in the next couple of days. And uh, you know, other than that, I, I don't write uh, for online much. Uh, it, you know, the right now I'm. I'm I've got a couple of book projects that should keep me keep me pretty busy uh, for the next year or so, and uh, and don't anticipate that I'll be doing a lot of writing outside of that. But uh, you know, I've got six other books, and uh, readers want to catch up on on reading me. They they've got plenty. Of, you know, they've got a half million words they can they can dig into. <laughs> Yes, well, uh, I, it sounds like Catherine's expi- inspired us to possibly read the 
Detroit Auto Book. And if so, if we can all get on our little book club and do that, maybe we can have you back in the future and discuss that book and then whatever else is happening in your world. Sure. I'll be happy to. And it's not a Detroit book. It's, I'll, I'll tell yeah, you what, a, the, the, the conceit of right. autobiography is that I found a 57 Chevy wagon and I managed to trace its ownership record back through 14 owners to the day it rolled out of the showroom. Wow. And I, I tell the story of basically of post-war America through this one car and these otherwise disconnected people who happen to share it. And, uh, you know, it centers on one one character, the thirteenth owner, uh, who is the the main driver of the thing. He's a <laughs> a bit of a maniac uh, who's been arrested seventy odd times, and uh, and who buys the car intending to restore it, and uh, and that's how the book opens. The the car is a complete beater when the book opens, and, and so the dramatic tension is. Is he going to be able to finish this restoration before all of his various personal and legal demons come home to roost? And uh, and he's got a lot of both. All right. So maybe our listeners now will be on board and they can um, read or, or hear that book uh, soon as well. Well, Earl, we want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. Well, thank, thank you so you much so for much. having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Yes. And – Listeners, that was Earl Swift, uh, author of many books. Uh, the one we could discuss tonight, Chesapeake Requiem, uh, just released in 2018. And, I mean, what a list of awards it's won. Uh, won. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. Um, I did much yard work uh, very happily this spring break because I was listening to that book. Well, guys, it's a little after 8 o'clock. So, until next week, that's been the Cudsey Vine. Good night. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.